This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith. I'll be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. And today we are diving into Exodus chapter 16. So, continuing along in the life of Moses and now we're finally on the other side of the Red Sea we're finally like this is the brand new birth certificate for the nation of Israel they are on their way they got the new calendar everything is good God has just done amazing things for these people and in this chapter we find out who we really are they're really really (laughs) mad about it all they're really mad about it like they they do not like this new salvation this new freedom they have in the wilderness. And so just to set this up, we've talked about this before, but I want to hit on this before we get into this chapter, because the story of the Israelites is told in a way historically and physically that is our reality spiritually. Okay. And so, so like out of the gates, you see, you know, here's these people and they're enslaved, right? They're enslaved in a land that's infatuated with death. And that's their reality from birth. And so what has to happen is God sends a deliverer. Well, this is, this is familiar for us, right? And what does that deliverer do? Well, he comes and he wrecks all the idols. That's, that's what we found out in the plagues. And all of these people find out that the things that they've been living for, all these false gods and false idols are empty and powerless. And when the lamb's blood is put over the doors of the house, it sets the people free. Three days after journeying out of, from the Passover, They go through the waters of the Red Sea, which Paul says they were baptized into Moses, so it's compared to a baptism. They go through the Red Sea, and once they come out on the other side, it's like a death and resurrection to a brand new life. Now they're in the wilderness. Life has began, which is telling you, and your Christian walk, you just had all the excitement of the salvation moment, the bloodshed, the baptism, and everything else. And so if if we're following the trajectory, what's our current status? In the wilderness. (laughs) We're in the wilderness. That's not... Yeah, that doesn't feel good. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. And there's going to be a long period of time. But eventually we have the hope and the promise that that the promised land is coming. Well, Mm. for us, that would be heaven. That's glory. But for now, we're in the wilderness and things are not as nice as we'd like them to be, right? Not not always. (laughs) So we're constantly looking for joy. And we're in a, in a world where we're looking around and we don't know where our needs are going to be met. And we don't know where our identity is going to be. And that's all the same thing that the Israelites have. And so you can personalize this as you're reading their story. You can, you can read yourself into the story and go, where do I do all the same stuff? Because you do. You know, we do. Yeah, and this is one where you don't want to read yourself in. But once you start to, you're like, oh. Yeah, you're all over. You want to look down on these guys at first. But then once you start thinking about you, you're like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally true. So jumping in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Is that a real place? It it is a real place. I know you said it's Sin. I I said it just so people wouldn't hear Sin. Sin, It actually is spelled S-I-N, like Sin. But in the ancient world, and they're not exactly sure what this means. It definitely doesn't mean the wilderness of Sin, like disobedience. That's just the way that it's translated. The Hebrew word for Sin is not Sin, right? So... 
what we do know is that the ancient world and this region worshipped a moon god, and the moon was always associated with fertility, and the name of that moon god was Sin, so it might be that this was named after one of the Babylonian moon gods, which was all about fertility. So you think about the moon, it comes, the full moon goes through a cycle once per month, and this is a little adult, but can you think of something else that comes through monthly cycles that has to do with fertility? Yes. Yeah. So a woman's ability I just wanted to you have to children, <laughs> right? So that's why if you go to just about any ancient culture, their gods of fertility were always associated with the moon. That's why the moon was huh. sacred. Spawning of, of fish creatures happens according to the lunar cycle. So always that was fertility. And it might be that sin or sin, the wilderness of sin was because they worshiped a moon God. Like Islam starts in Arabia and it's big deal is the crescent moon. And all throughout that region, you have all sorts of, of divine worship of moons and the moon God was sin. So it might be that total, total guess, which is between Elim and Sinai, which is something that has a, Sinai actually comes from a meaning that's like thorns and shrub bushes. It's not the same root as the wilderness of sin. Anyway, so they're traveling there between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they've departed from the land of Egypt. So it tells you that to say this is a month since Passover. So a month has gone by. And so what's going to happen in a month? Like you, you got to enter into the story and you know that when the Israelites left Egypt, they went and gathered up all the gold. They said, hey, can we have your gold? And the Israelite, or the Egyptians were like, sure, yeah, here's our gold and our silver and our clothing. And they took all their livestock with them, which is great because you're not finding crops hmm. in the Sinai wilderness. Yeah. You're not finding crops in the desert of sin. So they're out there. Well, they've got all this livestock. Well, guess what's happened over the course of a month? All right, we've gone another couple of miles. We slaughter another animal so that we can eat. We slaughter another animal so that we can eat. So you're a month into this ordeal, and now all of a sudden it's like, um, we're, we don't have all that much livestock left. What are we going to eat? Yeah. And so now this becomes the big question. And it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so, like, they're not dying of starvation at this moment, but they're noticing their supply line, <laughs> you know, it's wearing thin. And what are we going to eat? Because there's nothing around here but dirt and rocks, Moses. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's all of them, too. Like, you wish, again, that this would be just a few bad apples that, that aren't trusting in the plan, but the whole congregation of Israel is starting to get angry. Yeah. And it, there, there's no, and this is something that is interesting about the nature of man. I, I love that they come to Moses and said, you meant to bring us out here to kill us. <laughs> like, like Moses has been plotting to liberate them from Pharaoh and deliver all the plagues and cross the Red Sea and do all these things with God's divine help, obviously, to liberate them out of slavery in the land of death. And the moment they're out there, not a month later, and things get a little bit hard, it's like, you meant this. You meant to hurt us. And they go after leadership and attribute the worst motives possible. Like, ouch. Because Moses has basically left a life, if you remember, when he was a shepherd for his father-in-law out in Midian. He had a life that he loved. God came and said, I want you to deliver my people. What was Moses' response? No. I'm, no, thanks. I'm pretty happy yeah. right here. I don't want to go. And he goes, and what's the thanks he gets? He 
They're pretty angry with him all the time. Constantly. Constantly grumbling, complaining about everything he's ever done. You did this to us. We'd have been better off if you'd have just let us die in Egypt. And you have to wonder if the flesh behind Moses is like, yeah, I wish you would have died. <laughs> wish I would have left you behind. Yeah, right. You should have wished you would have been in Egypt. But the way that they phrase this, it's really interesting because they say, man, we wish. Now, they're not starving, remember, but they see something that's making them fret and worry. They're anxious. And they said, man, I wish we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And listen to what they say. When we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. So back then, when we could, when, when we could feed our appetites, I would have taken a moment's meal. I would have taken that and given up freedom. I would have given up a relationship with the Lord just to stay in slavery mm. where I knew everything was going to be met, where my appetites could be met. And I think when they say this, I think by the sovereignty of God, he's reminding you of another character from the Old Testament who was willing to trade the love of God, the promise of God, mm. for what? Just a taste of that bowl of stew, right? Esau's like, you can keep the promises. God, I want nothing to do with you. I'm hungry. Who cares about your promises? Just give me a taste. I'll trade it all for that. And now you have the entirety of the Israelite people saying, we're a lot more like Esau than Jacob. Mm. Yeah, it's almost blasphemous to a certain degree. Like they're almost like, we would rather not have been delivered at all, God. Mm-hmm. We'd rather just be stuck in the same old slavery. Cause it's, and again, they were enslaved. It wasn't like they were living great lives in Egypt, but mm-hmm. still they would rather do that. Com- completely. And I, just, I was a little hard on them when I first read this, but then it is so easy to sit in our comfortability, even if it's slavery. Because mm-hmm. freedom is scary in a way. Mm-hmm. If all we've ever known is captivity, if all you've ever known is being stuck in sin, the addictions give you... The addictions give you just enough pleasure to keep on going. Completely, totally. I can't tell you, like when when I first came to faith, and and still even sometimes, like there are things that I used to run to that would would feed my appetites, right? Yeah. Whether it was alcohol or addictions or sexuality or whatever, where when you're struggling in life, you're like, man, I just want some outlet that gives me just a moment of pleasure, and I'm willing to walk away from obedience, and I'm willing to walk away from all the promises, and I'm willing to walk away from a God who loves me and has has done incredible things to give me this freedom sometimes i do just want to go back to egypt where i knew that it would give me just a moment of pleasure even if the reality was that pleasure came in the middle of a life that's enslaved Hmm. right like i i remember feeling enslaved i remember thinking like is this is this all there is to life i can remember thinking man this alcohol is wrecking my reputation it's destroying my life it's making me into something that I don't want to be, but buried in all that shame and slavery was these little moments where, man, it was just kind of fun or it was kind of satisfying for just a moment. And God's like, no, 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 I'm leading you out of that slavery. And you're going to have to set aside those, those momentaries of pleasure that are unhealthy and sinful and replace them with a life where you can genuinely trust me, trust me to provide in a life of freedom where joy is the ultimate reward in the long haul Hmm. and peace. Yeah. And this also, what we're going to see here, and I'm going to set this up and we'll, we'll answer it later. But this is also the big problem that you found all throughout Genesis, right? So we're, we're, we're now in Exodus, but when you went through the patriarchs of Genesis, you remember what they always faced? Famine. Hmm. 
Like they were always going in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham gets to the land and there's famine in the land. And what does he do? Oh my gosh, is God going to provide for me? No, I need to run down to Egypt where Pharaoh is going to be the one who cares for Abraham and Sarah. And all kinds of mess comes out of that, right? Yeah. Then you jump to Genesis chapter 26 and you got Isaac and there's another famine in the land. And God comes to Isaac and actually says in that chapter, do not go to Egypt. Trust me. I've called you to this land. Trust me to take care of you, even when it doesn't make sense. And Isaac's going, oh, but there's famine and none of this makes sense. And how am I going to take care of tomorrow? And he stays and God supernaturally blesses his crops a hundredfold. And all the people around him at Gerar are like, oh my gosh, how is he getting all this money? And they're going to come to him to buy stuff. He gets astronomically wealthy but the message was, don't go to Egypt. And then Jacob has a famine, and what happens? That's when they all go down to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, and they end up getting stuck there and enslaved in Egypt. And so the Bible is conditioning you to understand when there's a famine. And by the way, every generation, it seems like, is going to face a famine. Yeah. What do you do? Mm. And I get it. Like What you want to do is to say, I'll figure it out on my own. And and here, Egypt is the bad place. Egypt is the serpent-crowned king in the land of death and all that. It's it's telling you this is the bad kingdom. It's saying, don't go down to the bad kingdom to figure this out. Don't race down to Egypt, whatever your Egypt is, mm. to find your satisfaction. Trust God where he's called you to dwell. Stay faithful to what he's called you to do, even when you can't make sense of what the famine is doing. And he'll provide for you. That's really cool. The idea that uh, being with God in a famine's better than the slavery of whatever death you're looking for. That's right. And one of the things, if you remember this, when it when when you got to the story where Lot goes down to to um, Sodom, Sodom, Sodom. You know, it says it was well watered like the garden of the Lord and like the lands of Egypt. And so Egypt is actually compared to the Garden of Eden. Like mm. it's got so much abundance and so much crops. But the reality is, you can have the garden, and if God's not there, it's slavery. Would you want heaven if God wasn't there? Would you want the Garden of Eden if God wasn't there? And what this is teaching you is, if God's not there, it's not paradise. No matter how pretty it looks, you don't want to be in Sodom. You don't want to be in Egypt. Those are places of slavery and brokenness. Go wherever the Lord is, even if it's a desert. Yeah, and the people are yelling at Moses and Aaron, but the true statements they're making is they're yelling at God. Right? They may be using the mediators to do that, but their real frustration is not necessarily with Moses and Aaron because they're just leading the way God is telling them to lead. So when push comes to shove, it's the fact they don't trust God. Completely. Which is amazing because, again, we think this is after the plagues. This is, they've seen some stuff, mm -hmm. some really miraculous stuff. And here they are, what, 45 days later? Mm -hmm. And they're already like, no, nah, let's go back. And you're going to see more of that. Like, I'm trying to imagine, like, when we went through the plagues, after the third plague, everything stopped right at the border of Goshen. So imagine billions of locusts, and they just stop right at the border of your step. You watch that, and you go, yeah, this God wants to kill us. All the livestock die except your livestock. Oh, yeah, this God's after us. Everybody gets boils except you. And then... All of that, that God has shown favor upon you and protection upon you and that he goes out of his way to fight for you and defend you. He parts the seas. He does all that stuff. And still these people are like, he's not giving me what I deserve. He's out to get me. Like, oh my gosh. And then here's, here's the sad part is you can look at that and we, we mock that. 
but how many times in ministry, like, okay, I'm, I'm doing what you called me to. I'm living the life that you've, I feel like you've called me to. When something goes wrong, you're like, really, God? Like, yeah. I'm doing all this. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Right? Why aren't you bringing revival? Why, why did you allow this to happen? And in some sense, we still treat God, even in ministry a lot of times, like it's a transactional relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're deluded enough to think we've done our part. <laughs> yeah, that's Well, crazy. like God's lucky to have us. Crazy. And it's, and it's scary just how our repetitive nature is so strong. Because what they want is just pots of meat and bread. Yeah, like they're going to throw all of this away just so they can snack a little bit better. Pretty wild. And I wish that was different. You know, I'm not begging for pots of meat, but the appetitive nature is still strong because of sin. Mm -hmm. So it's something to keep an eye on. And if you're God at this moment and you've done all this and these people are raising their fists at you and your prophet, what's your response? I'm taking out some of them. (laughs) Not the whole lot. Dude, for real. Like if there's a button that I get depressed and it's like, you know, maybe half or so, just. Yeah, just. It would get really annoying. Like, it, you ever go on a trip with somebody who's just always like, this stinks. Yeah. This st- it ruins the trip for everyone. Well, we work with, I work with teenagers, so yeah. <laughs> That's true. So, but it's like, just that grumbling makes everything miserable for everybody. And so you got to imagine, like, especially in leadership, Moses being like, oh, I knew, I, knew I, sh- I shouldn't have, you know, like, God, what have you, what have you put me in? Why have you called me to this? And again, over a million people grumbling at you. Mm-hmm. That would be so frustrating. Yes. Like you hear talking. it once, you hear it once, you hear it, and then you just hear it all day long, 24-7. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's failing us. He wants to kill us. <laughs> he took a wrong turn. <laughs> uh, so verse four, this is God's response. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. It's pretty cool. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Why? Why is there twice as much on the sixth day? The Sabbath. Because he wants them to rest. And so now they're saying God is mean. God's a bully. God wants to kill us. God, you know, We'd have been better off without him. And God's response is, I'm going to supernaturally rain bread from heaven. And it's not like slop bread or yeah. like terrible rye bread or something. <laughs> you anti-rye? I'm anti-rye. I can't do rye. Okay. Don't like it. Hot take. The guy I did breakfast with today, the only thing he got was dry rye. And I was like, are you are you sadist? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? Dry rye. Anyway, not a fan of rye. But anyway, it tells us later that this manna is like wafers of honey. So he doesn't just give them bread. It's like he's giving them Danish. You know, he's he's giving them something that's tasty. It's not just, hey, this will keep you alive. He's giving them something that's sweet, that's tasty, that's exciting. And then on top of that, as these slaves are walking away, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to give you two portions on the sixth day because as your God, I want you to stop your slavery. I want you to stop working. Like when have they ever heard that? Never. Never. Their only value in Egypt was what they could produce. And God comes along and says, you're not allowed to go gather bread on on the Sabbath because I want you to stop and I just want to be with you because your relationship matters more than your labors. Mm. I want your worship over your works. And that's the heart of God. That's the heart of the gospel. Like, And we always are trying to strive and like, what can I do? What can I earn? I want this to be about what I do. And God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa stop. Every bit of your victory so far has been me. 
Do you think I brought you through the Red Sea out into the wilderness just to watch you perish and to, and to laugh at you as you suffer? Like that's not the character of God, but he's having to slowly beat that through their brains and hearts the same way that he has to slowly beat that into our hearts. Because as a, as a 45-year-old guy, like that's something that I'm learning more and more as I go. And the more and more I see God deliver me through really kind of wilderness feeling situations. The next time I get in the wilderness, I'm like, I don't like this, not liking this at all, but I know man is coming. I know he's going to provide. Yeah. We as humans put so much like human thought into God that we treat him like a human. Like we're afraid he's just going to drop us at the drop of hat that he's changing, that he's not always going to be who he is. And yet time and time again, like this is such a gracious move by God. Completely. Like it's so crazy. So unwarranted. I mean, we just said we would have, gotten rid of half of them god's yeah. like no i'm gonna feed them with awesome things yeah it, it, he is incredible and he does the same for us if we're if we're able to really put on the lens of faith he does the same for us and so verse six it says so moses and aaron said to all the people of israel at evening you shall know that it was the lord who brought you out of the land of egypt and in the morning you shall see the glory of the lord because he has heard your grumbling against the lord now if you told me that god heard all of that that he heard my grumbling. Like I'm, I'm waiting for the lightning bolts or the snakes or, you know, something to wipe me out. And here it is. Just so you know that God heard your complaint, he's going to give you a reward so that you know that he heard you and it will be for his glory. Because when someone is kind to you after you've been a punk, <laughs> what, what is the natural response of the heart? A redeemed heart anyway. You're just drawn to that person. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so unworthy of this. This makes me want to serve you more. You know, it's, it's what's the line that comes in Romans where um, it is the kindness of God uh, that leads to repentance, repentance. Yeah. right? Well, what does that mean? Well, if he's sitting there with a whip or the dangers of hell or whatever, you might repent, but it's not going to be for long. It's going to mm. be all in your labors and, oh my gosh, whatever I have to do just to not make him mad. But when you've given every reason to make him mad and he shows you kindness and response and gives you manna and rest and everything else, which God does for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Man, that kind of kindness makes me want to repent. It makes me want to turn to serve him. And that's what God is up to here. Um, he's incredibly long-suffering. Just He's a beautiful God. And so Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full... Because the Lord has heard your grumbling and you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So Moses is like, hey, Aaron and I, we're, we're not part of this. Yeah. Like your, your, your issues with God and he's going to deal with you and you're going to see how gracious he is, but it's him who's leading this. We're not leading. We've been following them. What do you think these pillars of fire and cloud have been doing? What do you think that's all about? Like this is him who is leading you. And so now you're not just getting the, the wafers of honey manna flavor stuff. Now you're getting these fat birds Mm. that are going to be available for you in the evening. And so you get lots of good protein. It's like God is giving them in the middle of desert territory, a feast. How do you work through that? How do you work through the ideas of getting back to the grievances that we hold in our heart against God? Because there's all these things that, that kind of we get wrapped up in. Oh, my job. I want my job to be different. or I want a different relationship. Or I want this or I want that or my, my friends or whatever it is. And we do all of these earthly, worldly things. And we put 
our grievances against them. But then how do you backtrack those things to maybe they are feelings about God in the long run? Yeah. You know, I just taught a sixth or a seventh grade class about suffering yesterday. And it was kind of interesting to talk with, with younger kids about suffering because we always want to say suffering is bad. And in our culture today, we want to do anything we can to get rid of it. Right. Because yeah. suffering, we don't like suffering, obviously. But there are things that only suffering can do in us mm. that a life of ease cannot. Um, if I look back on my life, I wouldn't be married to Laura without a particular season of suffering that led me into a position where I was ready to meet her. Wow. I wouldn't have had my children. I wouldn't have been in ministry. I wouldn't have come to Christ without seasons of suffering. And there are some times where we look at a particular thing that has landed in our lap and everybody has them to one extreme or one degree or another. And when you invest those sufferings in Christ, you almost inevitably can look back and see the ways that he has conformed you more into his image because of them. Mm. And you can have one of two responses. You can raise your fist to God and say, I will not follow you because you allowed this to hit me. Yeah. And in that kind of a response, you waste your suffering, which is the double tragedy. It makes it doubly tragic that you think it's all meaningless. Mm. But if you can take that suffering to say, you know, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to be more conformed into the image of Christ. I'm going to use what I'm going through so that I'm more compassionate to others or, or whatever the case might be, however God is using it to change you. Maybe it's to bring you to the end of your own strength to where you need to recognize that you lean on God. I mean, that verse where it says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness comes at the back end of Paul begging God to take away a thorn from the flesh, which God did not do. Wow. And so sometimes God comes and gives us a no so that the suffering makes us into the people that he has designed us to be. And that's really hard to wrap your mind around. But if I were to ask you the most formative moments of your life, I would bet they're not rainbows and sunshine. Yeah. Yeah, there are moments when you all you can see is that you've been forgotten by God and then he proves himself again. Mm-hmm. Even if the circumstances don't change, when you remember that he's not changing either, that's, that's your breakthrough moment, like yeah. you're saying. Always. Like, I, I don't know a lot of people who come to Christ because they, life was great and they took up an intellectual hobby and got convinced that they should give their life to Jesus. Yeah. You know, it's, it's usually when you find out all the other idols are empty and you're left heartbroken and empty and desperate to find some semblance of meaning or hope for your life because it feels empty otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that's the kindness of God that leads you to the moment. Like me and my conversion, I look back at it and I say, okay, well, that was at the tail end of a, of a season of addiction where I trashed my reputation, where my mom was living with me and my dad had temporarily kind of disowned me, it felt like. Hmm. Uh, there was so much going on where I had really wrecked my life and all of my comforts, all the, the rocks that I thought I was standing on just went and were gone. And it was one of the most debilitating seasons I've ever had in my life where I wept and I was, I was not a crier back then. Now I'm softy. <laughs> but back then, like, I never cried like this. And I remember being at work just crying at my desk thinking, what in the world is wrong with you? Yeah, that's a like, tough place to cry too. Please let nobody see this. And I look back and it's like that season, it did not feel like God's kindness at mm. all. But because of that season, my life radically changed. And I can go back and look and say, that was purely the kindness of God yeah. that brought me to the end of myself and the desires to find hope in Egypt. You know, he brought me out of Egypt. Mm. 
so I could be with him. And once you start walking with him, even in the deserts, the moments where you're genuinely surrendered to him, you won't find more peace and joy than those moments. You know, Egypt is going to leave you empty. Guaranteed, you know it will. This world, apart from God, is empty. You can't take anything with you. All of it can't satisfy you. You keep chasing it, thinking more will do, and it never does. That's Egypt. Get out. Don't want to go back, you know. Know that it's going to leave you empty and a mess. Yeah, and God's so gracious to us, even in modern days, I mean, always, but even giving us the book of Exodus and not stopping after the Red Sea. Yeah, yeah. Like not saying like, oh, this is where it all ends. Have a great life. No, he's like, we're going to be in the wilderness and it's only going to multiply because of what they do. But this is where we're at right now. Yep. Because we can, like, by the way, we can relate to the season of plagues, but we can't relate to the supernatural nature of it, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we haven't seen rivers turn to blood or anything like that, right? That would freak me out. (laughs) Hopefully not. But what we have experienced is our idols being trashed. True. You know, we haven't experienced the plague of the firstborn dying, but we have seen God give his firstborn for us. Mm. We haven't parted through the Red Sea, but we have been baptized, but we relate more with the wilderness because it's like a treasury. It's an everyday like, oh, again, and we're just going to march around and like, what's the point? Like, we're not on the promised land yet, but there's nothing as exciting as what was going on back there when the battle was raging. Right now, it's just about daily faithfulness and obedience and getting up and doing what God calls us to do. And man, this is hard. Like, this is this is not, you know, the limelight, the big glamorous yeah. show. And it's easy to despair in that and go, what's the point? I'm going back to Egypt where it was exciting, mm-hmm. you know? Anyway, but faithfulness is important. So verse nine, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Like how many times does he have to say that? Um, And they learn it and they know it and then they forget it and then they fall back into the stupidity again and again like we all do. Mm. And so this is kind of like this moment where God shows up and it's not just God saying to the people, I'm here, I'm showing up to take care of your need. But he's talking to Moses, which is validating Moses, because what has Moses just said? Hey, it's not us, it's God. And God shows up and says, yeah, let me tell you in front of all them so that they see I am the one who's leading you to lead them. And he validates Moses, which is kind of cool when that happens as a leader. Yeah, especially <laughs> in moments when you're like, no one's listening. Mm-hmm. What will make it happen? Yeah, when, when it shows up and it's like, okay, all of your leadership, which has been questioned and challenged and everything else, when it gets validated by something that only God could do, it's like, oh, that was kind of nice, <laughs> you know? And all the pride is like, you see, see? Yeah. yeah. Egypt's not so hot now, is it? Anyway. Anything else there? No. <laughs> all right. Verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And then, did I say pigeons earlier? I didn't say pigeons. I don't think fat birds. I think I said anyway, it's quail. You didn't define the birds yet. (laughs) In my mind, for some reason I had pigeon going on, came up and covered the camp. And in the morning do lay all around the camp. You know, people who try to find naturalistic explanations uh, for, for manna and the quail, it's, it's kind of interesting quail when they fly, 
will get really exhausted. And in the mornings, they will be so exhausted that they land on the ground and they just kind of flap around and everything else. And, and the desert territories, and it does make it easier for, for you to gather them. And I don't know if this is what happened or if like dead quail fell to the ground or what was going on. It's kind of, it doesn't tell us that, but it's kind of interesting. They also have an explanation for manna, which I totally don't buy, but they say, you know how it says it looks like coriander seed and it's yeah. got kind of a whitish tone to it. And it's like honey wafers. There's an insect that goes into tamarisk trees or terebinth trees and they will pull out the sap and then they excrete these little white balls that are sugary because it's from the sap and they leave them all around. And people have wondered, did God do that? But there's no way it could be enough to care for 600,000 men. So, but there's naturalistic explanations out there. I don't know why I say that. People are really trying. Dude, yes. Like that seems crazier to me than just being like, God, God made it. some quail fall and some <laughs> some manna came from heaven. It's, there's so much of that where people can't just accept a miracle, you know, where they need the explanation. But there, there are people out there who figure out, okay, well, why would quail allow themselves to be captured? Are they dead? What happened? And that actually is something that happens with quail where they flap around on the ground. You're, I think the quail, they were dead and they were just on the ground. All right. That's kind of how I've always viewed it until I was reading for this podcast. I was like, oh. I didn't know that there were people who even taught that. Yeah. So it says when the dew, remember what dew means, by the way? No. Dew is always blessing. Oh. Right? The dew of, of heaven, the dew of Hermon. All through scripture literature, wherever you find dew, that's that's associated with the blessing of God. And what's weird about this is there's dew out in the wilderness, right? Like you don't you don't think of dew being in a desert. And yet when God's there, there's dew there. You ever notice that? Just now for the first time. <laughs> right? I, me too. But it's weird. Why is there dew there? If I'm walking around in the Sahara, I'm not expecting my feet to be wet on the sand, you know? Um, but when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people saw it, they said to each other, mana. No, they actually said, what is it? <laughs> But in Hebrew, what what does that word mean? What does manna mean? Do you know? What is it? It's exactly what it means. It's the question. What is it? So they look at this stuff and they're like, what is that? And so in Hebrew, it literally is. What is that? They're so creative. <laughs> yeah, just, we'll just stick with that. Yeah, that sounded good. <laughs> you don't try to come up with some like honey wafer synonym. Just what is it? We're trying to name, like come up with clever names for some other projects we're working on. We should just call it video thing. <laughs> you know, like creative like the israelites what what i don't know you just took that video thing pretty far shut up will (laughs) shut up all right so for they did not know what it was and moses said to them it is the bread that the lord has given you to eat this is what the lord has commanded gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat you shall take each take take an omer Um, what's an omer an omer, there's a biblical note there. An omer was about two quarts or two liters. So half a gallon. You got a gallon of milk, half of one of those. Huh. Okay. So that's good, a good amount. That's a good bit. That's a lot of sugar. High high glucose going on there. Yeah, it's probably honey wafers. Sturdy bread, you know? You get some protein at night. The quail's coming. So according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent, one of the things 
that's interesting about this. I was reading a commentary on it that I thought was interesting. So God rains down manna that's available to the whole nation of Israel. You can go get it. You know, you may have to walk a ways or go go find it or get out of the place where it's all being taken up. But it says every single one of you, each household has to go get it. So you weren't allowed to say, uh, I'm going to hire someone to go do it. Hmm. Like everybody had to have ownership and going to get their own meal. It was like, and that's very emphatic in the language that each of you, each one of you is to gather it. And so that's kind of cool. You had to add personal responsibility to God's provision. That's as right. Well. Yeah. And this God is not just, I mean, salvation is entirely a gift. You can't earn it. You can't mm-hmm. deserve it. But then in the daily walking, the sanctification piece of the it, wilderness, that's correct. You're you got some skin in the game. You got to take up your cross. You got to go out there and do some stuff, right? Not for your salvation, but to grow in the kingdom of God. You're doing stuff. Go gather your stuff as much as he can eat, which is kind of cool. Like so gather as much as you want. There's no limit on how much you want to gather. God's got plenty of provision. So verse 17 it says, "And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it, with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So there's nobody who's like, oh, man, I'm still hungry, or there wasn't enough. Like, God's provision was was good. It's not stingy. That's he, Right. He's going to meet your need. That's the point. You don't finish and go, oh, he's, he's left me lacking. I still want more. Like, God will meet your need with what, what you need, right? Mm-hmm. And so each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to him, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it. And so it's like classic guys. And so here you see like this, this incredible graciousness of God. And you could be really easy to say, oh, well, when is, when does discipline come in? Cause like God also says that he disciplines those he loves. He doesn't just go, Oh, here's more blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing without you learning your lesson. Right? Like that's another thing that I experienced from my actions repeatedly, even after I became a Christian and I decided I was going to go back to Egypt. There were consequences for messing up that made me go, man, you know what? It really is better off with God. And you're going to see that. But out of the gates, when they first come out of Egypt and they're now going around in the wilderness, you find this like incredible consistency of God's goodness in spite of the fact that they're grumbling, in spite of the fact that they're complaining, and they're, they're going to be disobedient. We'll see here in a minute. Again, and he just keeps blessing them and blessing them and blessing them. And I don't want you to think that that's the way that God always works because later on, they're going to face scorpions. They're going to face snakes. A lot of them will not be allowed to go into the promised land because of their disobedience and cowardice. So God does bring the consequences that that we're to learn from. In fact, when, when Paul talks about this in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he says all this stuff that's happening with them in the wilderness is given as examples to us so that we can learn not to grumble and how to deal with temptations and things like that in the wilderness. All that to say, God does discipline. It's not just that God's kind of this blind parent that enables spoiled brats to stay spoiled. He will bring the rod of discipline. Some of them, like Korah's rebellion, they get swallowed up and they die. Like he knows how to bear the rod. But in that, those early days when he's bringing them under his wing, you find this overwhelming compassion and patience in this story. So I don't want anyone to be confused like that God does not discipline. Oh, he will. 
There are consequences to sinful behaviors. And yet, God disciplines for the sake of love mm. to draw you back to his blessing. And so in verse 19, it says, Moses said to them, let, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. So here's this rebellion where you're like, I don't, I don't like these people. <laughs> Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and it stank. I love them. That's in the Bible. And stank. Stank. <laughs> and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, which is another reason why I don't think the, the theory of the insect juice works. Like you're not going to bake insect juice. <laughs> so it's you can bake this manna, whatever it is, or boil it. And all that's left over lay aside and it's to be kept until morning. And so when he comes, the Sabbath is going to be a big deal. This is before the Ten Commandments, by the way. And he's already saying, no, I want you to rest and I want you to be with me. Yeah, I didn't know that this actually got introduced here, which yeah. is fascinating. Yeah, pretty, pretty awesome. And he'd actually, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread before that, so when you have Passover, before they go through the Red Sea, on the night of Passover, he says, okay, I want to start a new feast. It's going to be a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he tells them, the only thing that you're allowed to do during that entire week, it's a seven-day feast, the only thing you're allowed to do is to cook for each other to celebrate this feast. Outside of that, I don't want you working. So the first seven days after the Passover, I mean, apart from walking and carrying stuff, this feast is going on. God's like, I don't want you working. I just want you to be with me. Um, and so that's the first time anybody has seen that command coming to, to men that I can think of off the top of my head that will be picked up in the, the fourth commandment on Mount Sinai. So it says, where are we at? 24. 24. So they laid, laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And so somehow this bread supernaturally, which also gets rid of the insect stupid thing, <laughs> yeah, stupid insect theory. <laughs> so suddenly on on the sixth day, it doesn't become stank. Anyway, so they laid aside till morning. It did not stink. There were no worms in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, guess what? Some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, now you can see like God's patience is getting tested. He's like, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And these aren't even tough ones yet. You, this is like all for your blessing. Yeah, this is like just so you're not hungry. This is like, let me take care of you. And they're like, no, we know better. <laughs> we want to go out there and get it. <laughs> I, I want to store it up. But I mean, again. Yeah, we jokingly do this all the time, so. Yeah, this is not enough, God. I need more. Yeah. You know, I I can't obey. I can't follow your call on my life because I need to go chase after more. Like we can see ourselves in this story too. We're we're just as stupid. Yeah. Unfortunately. But anyway, so they go out there. God's like, "Come on. Like really? This is the easy low-hanging stuff. I'm just trying to take care of you. You won't even let me do that." And he's see the Lord has given you a Sabbath. Therefore, on the 6th day, he gives you bread for two days. 
Like, I know that your nature is slavery. I know that you've been abused for centuries. I know that this is generationally you've learned that you've got to go out there and by your own strength, you've got to make it happen. Stop. And it's like God putting them in a detox program, okay? Because remember what the Old Testament, like all of Genesis is, oh my gosh, there's a famine. We need to do it on our own. And God's like, whoa, 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 don't you trust me? Like, I've called you here. Do you trust me to take care of you? And they're like, no, we're going to Egypt. Well, now he's called him out of Egypt. And you want to talk about famine. How about I throw you in the middle of a wilderness? Yeah. Can you trust me here? And the answer is, no, we want to go back to Egypt, just like all the patriarchs did. And what does God do? He's like, I'm going to put you on a detox program. And every single day, you're going to have to wake up and trust me that there will be manna waiting for you. And every single night, you have to trust me that I'm going to make the quail available for you. And it really is. I'm going to teach you that I provide your daily bread. Really, really hard to do. Like when Jesus, when we're asking Jesus, how should we pray? That's like one of the big ones. Give us this day our daily bread. Why is that so essential? It's the first thing that you ask for that's not worshiping God, right? You know, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your your will be done. That's all God. But the first thing that people ask for in and of ourselves is give us this day our daily bread. Like this has always been the struggle. Are you going to provide for my needs? Is it going to be there? That's the struggle of the patriarchs. That's the struggle going on right here. That's the reason why they go out on the seventh day is I need more. I don't trust you to give me enough. I need more. And God's like, oh my gosh, like (laughs) what else do I need to do to prove myself to you? And it's like, oh, yeah, I, I'm guilty of that quite a bit in a million ways. You know, I need to prove my reputation. I need to, I can't slow down. I can't take a break because I've got to keep it going. I got to keep proving myself to everyone and anyone and God. And, and he's like, no, stop. You're not allowed to. So now verse 31, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So there's three things that go in the Ark of the Covenant, if you, if you know this. Two of them we've been introduced to, Aaron's rod, got him. which is later on in a story that's really wild where Israel is rebelling against Aaron, Moses' brother is high priest, and they want to replace him. God says, okay, well, the one that I like I'll make the rod or the staff of this person blossom with almond blossoms. And it's Aaron, and God is bringing a dead thing and making it come to life, right? So it's resurrection. Well, I want that to go in the Ark of the Covenant. But this one's weird because what what is manna defined by? Every single day, except for the sixth day, what does it do? Dies. It dies. It, it stank, <laughs> right? It stank and it get, gets worms in it. And God's like, I want that in the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. It's not going to perish there. So what's the meaning behind that? That he's the power of life. That's it. So here you have a substance that ordinarily is so quick to rot, so quick to decay, so quick to corrupt and stank and have worms in it. And yet when you put it in the place of God's glory, it does not die. So hear that. That's a, that's a message to you because you're, you're stank. <laughs> you know, by yourself, you're corrupt. You're you're going to die. You're going to decompose. And we're and yet, just a mist too. Yeah. You know, we're looking at all of eternity. It's not like Will's life is real long. I feel like it is. Yeah. Not, it's not just like manna. But when it's in the glory of God, mm. lives forever. Oh, and by the way, that rod, you know why God loves that so much? Here's Aaron, who really was not a good high priest. <laughs> like if I'm giving out the report card, 
He's not measuring so high, but in God's economy, that's the guy I want. Like, that's just cool, you know, because he really was not the greatest. I mean, he's he built the golden calf, like not to spoil that coming up. He's he's got some, There's some a lot strikes. of pressure on that one. <laughs> I feel like you're real Aaron bashing right now. I am I'm definitely Aaron bashing. But I'll tell you this, God didn't. God looked at a man that was deeply flawed and said, "I'm bringing resurrection power to that man's staff so that the whole country can see I endorse really messy people to be my ambassadors in this world." Hmm. That should humble us when we want to throw rocks at ministry leaders too, right? Yeah, and I even want to put a caveat on that for you, but I can't. Like, I really want, I really want to like button that up a little better. Oh, like, okay. Because yours was pretty open. Like, no, that's good. Yours was true. I just, it feels uncomfortable sometimes when you say it so blatantly. Though. <laughs> the last one's going to be the Ten Commandments, which that goes into the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the second copy of the Ten Commandments because the first one was broken because the people were worshiping Aaron's golden calf. And Moses got angry. <laughs> That's right. So all of the things that get put under the Ark of Covenant are the reminder of God's faithfulness to people who are really, really messy, which is a wonderful thing, and that he brings the power of life to go on forever. And manna was something that he saw as so precious that the, the place where he dwells, he's like, I want it decorated with that because the reminder of my faithfulness to people that I provide for their needs is really precious to me, and I want it to, to be in there forever. All right, what verse are we in now? I keep losing my place. 33, I think. 33. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The testimony, that's, that's the Ark of the Covenant. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years, so they're going to eat this stuff until Joshua leads the conquest and they get a foothold in the promised land. So for all 40 years, they're going to eat this manna. And in a different book of the Bible, this is one of the places where God brings discipline on the Israelites, and I think it's Numbers chapter 21, where they actually are like, we hate this miserable food, you know, because 40 years of cinnamon rolls. Yeah, you can imagine. Like cinnamon rolls are great, and I love cinnamon rolls, but I'd like something other than cinnamon rolls and quail. And so they start complaining at God again, and he sends snakes, right? And that's where the bronze serpent, if you know that story, and it brings healing to everybody. Um, But they're going to eat this manna for 40 years until they get a foothold in the promised land. And they ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. All the kids that may listen to this, you should really have the argument with your parents that God provided no vegetables. That's an interesting point. I mean, just sweet bread and quail. Yeah, vitamin A is not happening. I mean, vitamin they, C, like these these are some, what do you got, scurvy? There's nothing green. <laughs> no fruits, no veggies. My guess is that God is like, the manna is like the, uh, what do they call those, Nature's Valley, whatever pills or, that have all the stuff in them, like <laughs> Centrum. multivitamin? Yeah, Centrum vitamin is in the manna. They get all their vitamin C and vitamin A in the manna. It's there. Yeah, I don't doubt that God's taking care of them, but <laughs> just, just want to make an argument for the kids out there. Nice. Yeah, good call. Good call. So that brings us to the end of chapter 16. And in the New Testament, one of the miracles that every single one of the Gospels talk about is when Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? Yeah. He takes, he takes, and it proves that like God who brings bread out of nowhere to provide bread from heaven, all of the people are following Jesus around. And this is just instructive. And Jesus brings the application to himself. So 
let's talk about that. He has all these people that are following him around because Galilee, first century, it's a poor area. It's agrarian. You know, food is not like just abundant. And so he's doing miracles and he's healing people and they're following him around because they want a piece of the miraculous. They want him to heal the disease. They want him to give the food. They want him to do all of these kinds of miracles. And Jesus feeds them and they keep chasing him, wanting him to give them more bread, more bread and fish. Keep feeding us, keep feeding us. And Jesus has this real come to Jesus moment (laughs) with them where he's like, you're only following me because I provide you with a full belly, with a full belly. You, you just coming after me because of your appetite. And I'm telling you to come feast upon me. I'm the bread of life. I can satisfy you with eternal things, not something that's going to leave you just hungering tomorrow, right? All the things of this earth, you're just going to want more of. You need more of. Just for basic survival, you're constantly going to have to keep going after it and after it again and again. And Jesus comes along and says, Moses, you know, through Moses, you got manna, bread from heaven. But I'm telling you, I'm the true bread from heaven. Mm. And he compares himself to manna. And that, that's instructive because who is manna available to? The people of God. The people of God. But... Men, women, all of them. What races came out of Egypt? Like, so manna falls on the ground. It's available to whoever wants to go grab it. What is Jesus saying? Like, I come from heaven and I am freely available. There's no charge. You go gather it up. You feast on me all you want. I'm open and available to every gender, every race, whatever your income status is. I don't care about anything that typically divides humanity. The gospel in me is made available totally free of charge to you and it will satisfy you and you do not have to you know go through heroic efforts of laboring and planting and plowing and you just grab hold and i will give you life in a place where you cannot find life outside of me yeah and keep coming back yeah i mean that's it yeah that's right every day by the way you need that gospel you need to to feast upon the lord Every single day, and every single day, he's available to you. And then he gives us the communion elements, which yeah. I think is another interesting tie-in. Yeah, I am. I'm. This is my body, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and when you when you talk about Jesus being the one who satisfies and saying, you know, this is my body, take and eat, and it's you know everlasting life. One of the sad realities is that after Jesus gives that teaching and he says, like, this is me, like, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. You need to feast upon me. And the people are hearing this and they're like, is he, is this cannibalism? Like, this sounds really weird. And obviously he's talking about it from a spiritual perspective, but it says the overwhelming majority of the crowds all walk away at that moment. It's mm. that teaching where they go, no, I'm I'm not in. And they leave and he looks at his own disciples, and he's like, are you going to leave me too? And the response, the response is, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? It's not like, no way, Jesus. We love you so much. You're amazing. It's like, well, you're pretty much our only alternative is kind of the feel. Yeah, we already threw it all in. Of that deal. And you know what? Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'm done with you guys. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things when you're coming through these wilderness stories that's so interesting to see. Yeah, there's going to be moments where he disciplines 
But these people grumble again and again and again, and they let God have it again and again and again because God is calling them out into something that's totally new, totally uncomfortable. They've never had a God like this that they've known that's calling them to trust in something that's far better than what the world offers. And they keep stumbling again and again and again, and God never says, I'm like, I'm out. Hmm. I've get, My covenant, I'm taking it back. He just keeps pursuing broken people. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And what is he calling you to? He's not calling you to something cruel. Yeah, He's calling you to surrender everything that you're slaving over, to stop, to rest, and to be satisfied into something that can truly satisfy you because Egypt never will. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Out of Water podcast. Uh, we look forward to leading, it's talking. I always stumble at this part, to, to leading the pod, to joining you and seeing you and <laughs> land the plane. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining. We never see them either. Yeah, yeah. What do you say? You say it. Your, Will's closing this week. Go. Thanks for listening. Hope you listen next week. Bye. Done. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. water.